Well, good afternoon and welcome to Power for the People here on Solar Power WERU FM 89.9 in Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor, and of course, everywhere in our solar system at WERU.org. I'm your host, Steve Collin. Power for the People is here on the fourth Wednesday of each month to help listeners understand their energy future from home heating to electric vehicles and renewable energy, as well as the energy policies and technology behind the most cost-effective ways to get things done uh, and yes, to protect our, our increasingly, apparently, uh, fragile environment. Uh, I have uh, a really interesting guest here today. It's uh, Lisa Donahue, who, who is the Director of Advocacy and the Staff Attorney for Maine Audubon. Uh, and her mission in life, well, one of them at least, is to do responsibly sited wind, solar, and other renewable energy infrastructure. And boy, what, the, what more can we ask for? And she does work with the legislature on this as, as an advocate. And so we're gonna get into talking about the, the variety of renewable energy that's out there and her role and her perspective on uh, how this how we interact with the environment uh, in just a couple of minutes. But as is my habit, uh, I wanna just touch on a few things that are have come up in the last month or so that I wanna make sure that people are aware of. So uh, it's never clear to me who sees which links in their feed because the internet uh, tailors our feed to keep feeding us the same information. And that's one of the problems with the internet. Uh, but uh, at least in, for me, fusion has been something, the, the, the successful fusion that has uh, been touted has been prominent in my feed in the last week or so. And I do just want to touch base on that. Uh, so the the big advertise, well, for, for decades, People have talked about fusion, the process that happens in the sun, as being the holy grail for renewable unlimited energy. Uh, and uh, the National Lab out in California has uh, proudly said that they have done a fusion experience, experiment that produced more energy than it used. Uh, and uh, so they are saying we, we are on our way to having that unlimited energy. And I just want to put a reality check in here uh, that, in fact, uh, yes, they did get more energy out of the reaction than the laser put in, but it took a hundred times more energy to get the laser to where it was than uh, before they even got the reaction uh, producing energy. And so big picture was they got about 1% of the energy that they put in total back out of that reaction. And so I think we need to keep our expectations in line here. And if you, you know, reading between the fine print as I have, um, fusion energy is still decades away. And I would suggest, and other people have suggested on uh, in my feed as well, that uh, relative to the conversation that we're about to have with Eliza, uh, we're already going to be doing renewable energy before fusion ever becomes a reality. So uh, we need to be careful in that. And, and I might add too, the amount of energy they got out of this reaction was uh, proudly announced as one megajoule, which sounds like a lot of energy. It's point two, seven kilowatt hours, enough to run an LED light bulb for a day or two. So uh, we need to be, uh, we need to have a reality check on that one. Uh, you may also have seen that California has announced a program to install a quarter million electric vehicle chargers in California. And so relative to electric vehicles, which we've talked about a couple of times uh, on this show and allude to uh, more frequently than that, um, the issue of electric vehicle chargers and range anxiety, I think, is something that is, that is in fact going to recede into the background. 
Uh, Maine right now has on the order of 500 EV chargers, uh, which I think is pretty good for a small state with many fewer people than, than California. Uh, and surveys done by NRCM, for example, has shown that that 90% of EV owners, uh, that, sorry, that EV owners charge their, their EVs 90% of their time at home. So uh, they aren't looking for a charger anyway. And then finally, just to set the stage for where this program is going to go into the future, uh, keep in mind that there are rebates and tax credits from Efficiency Maine and from uh, President Biden's new Federal Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, those things come into play uh, in somewhat of an unknown time frame in 2023. And so we will be talking about those things in our program uh, because we want to make sure that everybody is aware of the, uh, the financial incentives available to you to do the right thing, uh, if I can say it that way, for renewables and do the right thing for our environment. So with that said, um, I do want to say that uh, another bit of feed that has popped up in my internet uh, relates to the biodiversity conference that just wrapped up in Montreal. And I'm using this as a segue, Eliza, to, uh, to uh, get to uh, the topic that, that we want to talk about, the general topic. And their agreement, as I understand it, uh, was a 30-30 agreement, meaning that their goal uh, was, to produce, to, was to protect, conserve 30% of the Earth's surface by 2030. I think I got that right. Uh, and relative to how poorly we adhere to climate change agreements, it uh, will be interesting to see how that goes. But uh, relative to that 30 and 30, let's use that as the springboard for if you uh, can, can jump off of that to talk about the situation here in Maine uh, and the importance of your role in looking at responsible siting for renewable energy, which of course, because you're Audubon, means that it, it relates to habitat and biodiversity. So welcome, Eliza. Nice to have you on board. Thanks so much, Steve. I'm happy to be here. So what do you think about 30 and 30? Well, I think it's a great great goal and one that I'm very pleased got as much attention um, as it did in Montreal um, this past week. Uh, I was disappointed to see that the United States was one of two countries that was not there. Um, but that aside, um, we know that the Biden administration has otherwise committed to that 30 by 30 goal. And not only has the Biden administration made that commitment, but so has the Mills administration. That 30 by 30 goal is a part of Maine's climate action plan as well. And one um, as an environmental advocate and one who works um, on state policies related to, to land conservation and habitat conservation generally is one that um, Maine Audubon absolutely has, has our eye on. Uh, and, and you're right, um, there is some inherent tension between that goal and the very real need to develop a great deal of renewable energy infrastructure um, in a very short amount of time in order to meet our other environmental goals that we have as a nation, as a world, uh, related to reducing carbon emissions, um, meeting our clean energy goals, et cetera. This is a, a unique time, um, particularly in my career and, and most definitely in the career of uh, others who are work in the environmental sphere, we're in a place where we're really actively advocating for development, which is um, a little bit different um, for, for many folks um, and is an exciting place to be, at least in my work, um, to be thinking about what are some strategies that we can employ to resolve that tension, that that need to, to deploy uh, renewable energy uh, very quickly, 
um, but also to protect uh, land, protect habitat to meet goals like the 30 by 30 goal. And we have to keep in mind that, uh, you know, the the environmental issue surrounding fossil fuels relates to um, drilling and pollution and water pollution, air pollution, uh, health issues, that sort of thing. Uh, in contrast to renewable energy, which is going to be uh, space uh, challenged. Uh, and so that is the, the interesting uh, uh, discussion that we need to have, um, you know, collectively uh, about use of space uh, relative to uh, just straight up, you know, chemical pollution and that sort of thing. Um, so that is important. Um, do you have any idea off the top of your head what percent of the U.S. is already preserved in national forests and national parks? I'm getting confused in my mind with some of the Maine statistics um, and some national statistics. I believe Maine is somewhere in the, the uh, low 20s as far as land conservation goes. Um, and that's an important, you know, you, you brought up national parks, um, national forests, you know, defining what land conservation means um, is is also a really important part of uh, of thinking about how we measure our progress towards thirty by thirty. Um, right. What I, could, I could go down that that road, but I think that's not our topic today. But right. uh, I know Maine is somewhere in the low twenties right now, so we're we're making good progress. Um, but we're there's more work that needs to be done again in a short amount of time. Am I wrong that the main goal is, uh, and it may not be in the main weight climate plan, but the main goal is 30% public uh, ownership uh, rather than conservation? Am I wrong about that? Mm, I'd have to go back. And maybe even if we have a, a moment, I'll, I'll flip through my climate action plan. I think I can even like grab it from where I'm sitting right now. But uh, I think it's a, a fairly vaguely worded, um, as I as I recall. All right. And I mean, in Maine, I mean, compared to I don't want to pick on New Jersey, but compared to New Jersey, we are obviously uh, way ahead uh, based on our forested area. Uh, and I will say one thing that uh, that has driven me crazy for years is, uh, and I just saw this just the other day, uh, a, a post that said that Maine was 90% forested. Uh, and it's been 90% forested since I was a kid, which means it ain't 90% forested anymore because development happens. And so I actually just Googled how much of Maine is forested. And the answer was 17.7 um, million hec uh, acres, I guess it was, uh, out of a total of 22, which means we're 77% forested. And I think mm. it's important for people to recognize that the whole 90% thing needs to go away. It ain't true anymore. Anyway, sorry, mm. get, I'll get down off my eye horse on that one. All right. So uh, just to remind everybody, we're, you're listening to Power for the People here on WERU-FM, 89.9 in Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor. And my guest today is Eliza Donahue, Director of Advocacy and Staff Attorney for Maine Audubon. And I will say, in the interest of full disclosure, that I have been a Maine Audubon member for uh, many years myself and am pleased to do that. Uh, so uh, we're, we're going to talk about, based on our our uh, previous conversation before we went on air here. We're going to talk about wind power, uh, offshore wind, which we haven't really touched on much on this program at all, uh, onshore wind and uh, and solar at least. Uh, but let's start with offshore wind uh, with and I'm just I'm just very interested to know where you guys are coming from uh, in terms of your interaction with the offshore wind initiative. Yeah. 
Great question. And, and something that I, I really love talking about. Um, Maine Audubon is a strong supporter of offshore wind and offshore wind development generally and offshore wind development in the Gulf of Maine. You know, Maine's, the Gulf of Maine has a really unique resources resource. We have really strong winds. Um, those winds uh, are in proximity to a lot of population centers. Uh, and the technology is evolving quickly um, in a in a really exciting way. Um, I think I would guess that your audience is generally aware that the University of Maine has been a leader in um, developing the technology to support floating offshore wind in the Gulf of Maine. And we need to have floating offshore wind in the Gulf of Maine as opposed to fixed bottom or turbines that are are drilled into the bottom of the seabed because the Gulf of Maine is is very deep. So we're excited, um, Maine Audubon, of the uh, resource that's available in the Gulf of Maine, and uh, and studies show um, experts agree that uh, offshore wind stands to play a really critical role in helping us meet our our clean energy goals, wean us away from from fossil fuels. But it is a new technology, um, and it. There are you know, many unknowns about the way that floating offshore wind or uh, wind generally development in the Gulf of Maine will interact with, with wildlife, with wildlife habitat and the environment. There is a lot of information that we can glean and have gleaned from you know, over 30 years of offshore wind development um, over in Europe. But there are questions that need to be resolved um, or that we need to work towards answering on understanding that that impact and that of of this development on on wildlife and the marine environment. And so that's, again, uh, this this sweet spot that um, Maine Audubon has really been embracing us. How can we really say yes to offshore wind, but say yes, and these are our expectations for how uh, that development can be done responsibly. All right, and you know the uh, so the interesting, as you just said, the interesting thing is that we're the University of Maine is uh, proposing floating turbines. Uh, those have now been deployed in both Europe and I think about to be deployed, or maybe are in the process of being deployed in California. So we are no, we're not uh, in the vanguard of that, which maybe is a good thing relative to us learning some more. But the big picture in terms of uh, I think I'm accurate in saying this um, in, in terms of, of wildlife impact and the impact on birds, is a especially for birds, a floating turbine is not going to be really any different than a fixed turbine. And so we've got decades of research on that. Uh, and my understanding is that um, the turbines are going to be far enough onshore that they're probably not going to be in main flyways for, for migrating birds. Can you comment on impact on birds? Yeah, I can, and and that that's great, and I appreciate you kind of drawing the um, that you can kind of make inferences from things that aren't maybe the exact same uh, technology in Europe, but that we can draw some information from that and apply to apply it to what's happening in in the Gulf of Maine. Because yes, we do know a fair amount about um, how birds interact with fixed bottom turbines in the the Gulf of Maine, uh, and you're also right that. Uh, as far as we can tell, um, though, and we can get into kind of the details of this and why we can't say it for certain, but the likelihood is that these turbines will be located um, several miles, probably in the high teens, uh, low 20s, at least miles away from, from the, gulf, the gulf. 
And it's also true that uh, we know that migratory bird species tend to stick uh, closer to the coast, um, that as they're moving um, from one place to another, uh, the majority of species like to like to do that. But there are still other species that because of the way that the Gulf of Maine um, is uh, is put together, that there are some species that kind of that like to cross the Gulf. And so those are the things that we're paying particularly close attention, understanding um, how those species move, um, when they move uh, and and where. Uh, so that we can hopefully cite those turbines or these research arrays in places that uh, avoid those flyways. All right. And, you know, I think the, given that a floating turbine is not free floating, it still needs to be anchored. Uh, I think there's probably some fish, some advantage to the fisheries for having structure out there that they can, they can kind of focus on. I mean, rather like they do with a shipwreck. Um, but what about, and feel free to comment about fisheries in particular, but uh, what are the, do we have research on whales? And obviously whales are, are hot button topic relative to the right whale and, and the lobster industry. Can you comment on, I, I frankly haven't followed that kind of uh, research. Can you comment on that? Yeah. Um, as far as we, we know, and from the, the great work that's um, been done by, or the research that's been gathered by the biologists and ecologists on Maine on, on staff, is that as far as floating offshore wind goes, the news is pretty good for, for whales. Um, you know, the impacts uh, from fixed bottom offshore wind uh, when it comes to uh, whales is the construction noise. It is really, really loud when you, you know, hammer or drill those fixed bottoms into the into the seabed. And that's very disruptive to marine life, particularly whales. That is not something that's going to happen with floating offshore wind. Um, so that's the biggest impact. The thing that we're looking out for with floating offshore wind in whales is entanglements. We all we know um, that that is a, a problem for, for right whales. But again, it looks like the news is pretty good. Um, the cables that would affix these floating turbines to the seabed, they're really big and really taut. They're not something that a whale could get um, wrapped up in because of, of their size and their immovability. But what can happen is that other things, um, you know, ghost fishing gear could get uh, wrapped up in those cables and that could pose a concern for, for whales. So, mm -hmm. Um, all things have an impact, um, but things are looking pretty decent when we're thinking about the impact that floating turbines could have on, on right whales. And your comment Favorable that, for the whales, that is. Right. Your, your comment that all things have an impact is such an important one that uh, I drive home in the courses that I teach uh, because, uh, you know, I mean, I teach a course called Towards a Sustainable Society because we can't get to it purely truly sustainable society. And so, so people uh, want to argue that, well, geez, we don't want to use insulation because it might have a greenhouse effect um, when I don't think we want to not insulate our houses. Uh, and, you know, they, 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 uh, people are concerned about solar on the interchanges in Augusta, which is exactly where it ought to be, quite frankly, because you can't use it for anything else. Uh, but they're concerned about, you know, the impact there. And uh, I mean, renewables are going to take up space uh, in exchange for the chemical uh, problems that uh, the fossil fuels have come from. So it's a, just, thank you for, for prompting me to remind people about that one. 
Just real quickly on floating turbines, though, there is going to be an installation noise. Something's got to be something significant. It does have to be pounded into the bottom to attach those cables to. Uh, and again, I'm not familiar with what how what that means, but is that going to be less of an issue for floating turbines compared to a fixed turbine, I suppose? That's my understanding, is that at least compared to those fixed bottoms, it, the impact of fixing those cables is much less significant. Right. And because there's going to be something above those cables as well, again, presumably the whales are going to be more aware that something is there rather than, uh, you know, kind of blithely uh, swimming into a, a, a lobster trap line or something like that. So, um, you know, I, I certainly agree that it seems like offshore wind is a, has a, all sorts of potential. It's clearly going to be expensive. Uh, it's logistically uh, interesting, shall we say. Uh, and But let's make the transition to onshore wind. And I'm just going to just come right out and, and say that my position for years as a environmental guy and a, and a water resources guy in particular, separate, we're taking a different hat than my energy hat. Onshore wind is doing little mini clear cuts on top of mountains where the water supply starts, your clean water starts up there. They've got these gravel pads, they're building roads all over the place, right through habitat. Uh, and they're building them out in the you know, out in the Williwax. So you're going to lose a fair bit of electricity, even just shipping it to where it's going to be used. So I've always had trouble with onshore wind from that perspective. Uh, can you, can you launch into Audubon's perspective on that, and given that I've just kind of set my own personal opinion out there uh, in terms of where you guys stand on that, especially relative to offshore wind? Yeah, yeah, great, great question, and I appreciate you, you know, your, you know, setting the stage there, and um, maybe just for the, your readers or your readers, <laughs> your listeners' benefit, um, you know, you referred to uh, cutting at the tops of of mountains and your concerns from water quality, and you referred to to chemicals. Um, and I just, I know, I know what you meant, but so to be clear, what your listeners are listening to, what you are referring to as concerns of when you lose tree co cover from those, um, from those resources, not so much any concern of chemicals kind of leaching from these wind turbines or, and whatnot, which is something that I've heard from folks, some concerns about, um, chemicals coming from solar farms, from, from wind farms, et cetera, which is not a, an environmental concern. What is a concern is what you just said, um, and that is uh, this habitat conversion, um, forest loss uh, that uh, is associated with, with onshore wind. Um, and Maine Audubon's position on onshore wind is, is at the highest level, the same as our position on, on offshore wind. We do think that offshore onshore wind, excuse me, uh, stands to play a, a big part and does right now play a big part of our renewable energy transition transmission. But again, it's not without its impacts. Uh, and from our perspective, the news is pretty good too. Um, you know, you you bring up some really important um, impacts that terrestrial or onshore wind has. And we did, uh, Maine Audubon did a study back in 2019 that looked at where are some preferable places that we could locate this terrestrial wind. And these days, we can locate um, off onshore wind in many more places than you could 20 or 30 years ago, and including a lot of places 
that are not those mountaintops um, that are really sensitive from an ecological perspective and also uh, really meaningful to a lot of people. And that's because these turbines are getting higher and higher. And when you have a taller and taller turbine, it means that it can reach it uh, can reach better wind resources in more locations. So we can be, we, the broader we, can be more choosy about where that terrestrial wind can be located and hopefully be located in places where it has the least wildlife and habitat impact. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I, I'm always uh, pleased, shall we say, when I go to Boston to see a big wind turbine down there in the harbor uh, and uh, relative to, to, to clear-cutting, uh, an area and building a road on a mountaintop in Maine. And again, you you clarified where I was going with the water resources thing. And let me right. just expand on that just a little bit more. I mean, clean water comes from water rainfall and snowmelt percolating through the forest canopy and down into the soil. Uh, at your typical wind onshore wind turbine site, there's a, a hundred yards in diameter circle of gravel there, which is going to increase runoff and increase pollution at the very top of the watershed where you're trying to create your cleanest water. So there's a, uh, there's part of my issue. Um, so um, what was the next question I was just going to ask you? So I have I did read a while back. I'll be interested if you were uh, if you've seen this that if you play, if you paint alternating blades on a on a commercial onshore wind turbine black and white, it's better for birds. Is there any any uh, research to that? Yeah, I believe so. And, and you know, I, I really need to revisit that article. Um, but I mean, the answer is yes, that is one strategy among many um, that can reduce uh, the collision risk for birds and in turbines. And, um, and so there are requirements, I believe, still from my time in the private sector, where I was actually working on uh, working with a company that uh, did siting for, for uh, onshore wind. I believe that the uh, requirement is still there for people to do uh, periodic surveys of how many bats and birds have been uh, have been killed in a you know underneath a turbine. That uh, research, that work, that requirement is still going on, and Audubon is uh, keeping track of that kind of work and those data. Uh, yeah, I mean that is something that we advocate when Maine. Um, you know, our engagement on I guess to back up a, uh, a little bit. Often the ways that we engage um, on all of these big um, projects, whether they be solar, onshore wind, offshore wind, uh, is engagement directly with developers and then engagement in, in permitting, particularly the state permitting. And so we encourage developers when they come to us early in the, the their stage of development to continuing to do those types of monitoring practices so that we can uh, continue to build our kind of our body of knowledge of what what happens to wildlife um, when we put these these projects um, up in Maine, and we make uh, the same ask of our environmental uh, permitters that they include those standards when they issue the permits for these projects. And, and you mentioned uh, noise disruption for on offshore wind. You clearly have noise when people are doing clear cuts at the top of mountains. Uh, and disruption of, you know, fragmentation of habitat. Uh, is that an issue that uh, you can comment on? I mean, that's different from direct kill kills of birds and bats. Yeah. Um, noise from construction. Yes, that is something um, 
construction of terrestrial wind. That is something that we comment on in the way that we um, engage on that is that we will often advise developers and environmental permitters to require that construction happen in you know outside of the breeding season outside of times that are when wildlife are most vulnerable um so that that noise does has the least amount of impact on them mm. as possible and uh, can i put you on the spot and ask if any per any permit any proposed permit for a wind uh farm has ever been denied i believe one has um and I, I'm hesitant to say that because I don't like to put facts out there that I can't immediately confirm because I, I do know that it was before, definitely before my time at Maine Audubon and perhaps before my time um, in um, working in environmental policy in Maine. But I believe, yes, one has been uh, has not been issued. But and but that may not have been because of wildlife or habitat issues. It may have been for other reasons, right? Right. right. Yeah. Right. So I'm again, I'm, I'm hesitant to to speculate because I don't have the facts. Right. Right. Okay. Well, uh, let's let's transition to uh, to solar. Uh, and I already mentioned a moment ago that uh, that there's um, uh, letters to the editor against the solar at uh, in Augusta in the inter in the interchange there and i and I, I i can appreciate that part of the 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 resistance there is that that the dot didn't go to the to the planning board to talk about it even though they didn't they weren't required to because it's federal land uh, but i've also seen other people say that geez those solar panels are really ugly and when i think they're just drop dead gorgeous uh, but that's just me as 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 an energy guy uh, where is where is Maine Audubon on uh, on solar in general yeah, well, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, we're all about solar as well, uh, and particularly about responsibly cited solar. Um, and that one, um, you know, as as folks are aware of, is a little raises different considerations um, than, or slightly different considerations than terrestrial wind and offshore wind because there are more options of where you can put solar. Um, you can put solar in uh, highway interchanges. You can put them on rooftops. You can put them as uh, parking lot canopies, et cetera. You can also put them uh, in uh, areas that you might also have found a terrestrial wind project. So uh, solar is has more flexibility generally, um, but also is subject to, to many limitations, um, which I expect our conversation will, will move towards where those limitations are or what Kind of guides solar to um, wherever it finds itself. What what guides the location of solar? So uh, I've been a, a solar proponent, as listeners of this program know, for a very long time. I was actually a, a member, uh, maybe even one of the founding members of the Maine Solar Energy Association back in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. uh, I was only six years old at the time, of course, right. Right. Uh, uh, and so. Um, you know, and in fact, uh, the uh, main news, uh, the, the Press Herald and Morning Sentinel ran a piece on my on my home where I am indeed uh, signed up for a community solar farm right now. And so, you know, my house is is 100% electrically powered, and I would argue 100% solar powered uh, because I can sign up for community solar because I have neighboring trees that I can't deal with, and so I really can't do solar on my on my house. For apartment dwellers, so uh, community solar is a, is a great option. Um, but the the uh, 
my concern here is, sorry, I'm looking for words, I guess. My concern here is that after the legislature uh, passed legislation in 2019 that essentially incentivized community solar and more in industrial scale solar, we are putting, we are doing clear cuts to put in solar and we are putting solar uh, farms on our best agricultural land. And I have a real problem with that. Uh, you know, we let off with talking about you talking about responsibly cited renewables. Tell me how we how we resolve this issue, and and if you want to if you want to link that back to any legislation that you know of or legislation that you would be advocating for, by all means, do. Yeah, and it's a it's a meaty topic, and and I'll, I'll take it uh, maybe a little stepwise. You know, I'll I'll start with saying that um, you know you bring up concerns, and I, I share um, some of your feelings um, about converting converting forest land and agricultural land to, to solar, um, it can be hard to see. But I think, you know, one of the p- things that Maine Audubon is trying to inject into this larger conversation is gets back to, you know, what, one of the things that we talked started with at the, the top of the hour is the reality that, you know, just kind of target forest land, um, that Maine has a lot of trees. Um, we are a heavily forested st- state. We can talk about, you know, that number, whatever, precisely what that number is. But the reality is, is we've got a lot of forests and uh, what that. And that means that if we are going to locate grid scale solar, which uh, is at this right now, um, some of the most cost effective solar out there, having these industrial sized solar uh, projects, we're going to need to cut down some forests. Um, that's hard to hear and hard to um, hard to kind of grapple with, but that's kind of the the reality. And so, what Maine Audubon's been trying to do, and I think we've been doing fairly successfully, is help people understand um, what is what's a what forested areas are a better fit for solar than others, or the inverse of that. What are some forested areas that we would like to see? Um, remain intact and and not uh, be converted into be these large forest lands. And I think that particularly, um, again, getting back to the top of the hour and talking about diversity, one of the places that we're um, really trying to avoid or, or steer solar or onshore wind development away from are the areas forest areas that would result in in forest fragmentation and habitat connectivity fragmentation. We know that one of the leading strategies for protecting biodiversity is making sure that wildlife can move across the landscape um, as our climate changes, can can move their habitats um, as our our climate warms and or as our climate changes. And if we do not put these large scale um, these large scale solar projects, larger scale uh, wind projects stand to get in the way of wildlife moving if they are not put if they do not avoid these areas that are particularly important from a habitat connectivity perspective. All right. And connectivity and fragmentation are key words that uh, show up in my courses regularly. And so it's it's good that you get those out there so that people understand that. Um, has has Audubon focused on or been a supporter of the concept of agrisolar, where people can grow blueberries under 
apparently to ad to advantages underneath solar panels uh, or have sheep grazing under them. I mean, to me, that is an important uh, option, shall we say, to make solar more environmentally friendly. Yeah, we've absolutely been supporters um, of that. You know, as a organization, um, we are not uh, we are not advocates for agri agriculture. Obviously, we're not not advocates for agriculture, um, but we're supportive of that because we feel like it uh, of dual use solar or agri solar or whatever you want want to call it, because we think that it's a good solution um, among many. Um, this is there's no silver silver bullet here at resolving working towards resolve, resolving this conflict, an opportunity to kind of have your cake and eat it too, to develop solar, but not lose the agricultural values of a particular spot. Right. And, and I will just say, I, I understand and appreciate your position on uh, on people being permitted to do some tree cutting where it's not uh, specifically going to be harmful to uh, uh, essential habitat. But the, uh, the interesting uh, irony there is that uh, Maine becoming net zero carbon uh, is predicated on us growing trees. And so mm -hmm. it's a little bit counterproductive to cut those trees down to, to, to uh, install solar. And so I think we need to be aware of, of those sorts of things uh, because they conflict uh, with one another. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's an incredibly important point. And I think that, um, you know, what I would add to that is that a big part of uh, increasing or uh, increasing our carbon stocks, allowing Maine to get to net zero, is not just about um, doing what we can to maintain the forests, but improving how we manage those forests as well. So it's not just just about keeping the trees for keeping the trees' sake. It's about thinking about whether there are forest management practices that can increase the amount of carbon that's sequestered on within those forest lands. Right, and one thing I do talk to my students about is that individuals can can uh, contribute to that as well. I mean, I've owned a few quarter acre lots on the houses that I've owned in, in my time as I've moved around. And uh, I actually went back and looked, I literally have planted hundreds of trees on these several quarter acre lots because I don't like to mow the lawn and lawns don't sequester carbon anyway. And so people can do very smart things with landscaping. And uh, if everybody did it, uh, it could make a difference. Sorry, just a little plug. There. No, no, it's it's, it's a, a really important plug. And, and right. I think my plug that I would add to that, that it's not only about those, those smaller house lots, but, you know, there are many main people who, um, who have even larger lots. Um, you know, a lot of people refer to their back 40 or, or whatnot. And uh, I've been really impressed uh, with actions that Maine has taken as a state to support those smaller landowners in thinking about ways that they can manage their forests for a variety of different values, you know, for forest products, um, for carbon sequestration, for wildlife habitat, et cetera. Um, you can do a lot of different things on one plot of land and they don't um, you have many different management objectives that don't necessarily conflict. Um, and uh, it can be very supportive of many of our larger climate goals. All right. And Maine's tree growth uh, law for small woodlot owners is a real key uh, component for, and I think unique in the country probably, for, for what you were just saying. Let me come back to and just say that um, the original 
I guess I, I don't know if I should say original, but certainly one of the thoughts about where to locate solar has been, let's put them on closed landfills where clearly nothing is ever going to happen. And sometimes that happens. Uh, Portland and South Portland have done it and, uh, and I applaud them. It doesn't always happen in part because the power lines may be a little bit too far away from that landfill. And, and to me, there ought to be incentives to get the power lines there so that we can use landfills. Uh, you know, I would suggest that uh, if I can get the attention of people in Augusta that write letters to the editor, interchanges are exactly where we should be putting these darn things. Uh, and they've been doing it in Massachusetts because the environmentalists have actually pushed back against cutting trees. And the other thing that I want to throw out here, uh, out west, wind farms, you know, large commercial wind farms typically have a gas-fired power plant built with them so that when the wind isn't blowing, they can still generate electricity. Why aren't we putting solar panels on these 100, uh, 100 uh, yard diameter circles underneath the wind towers in the state of Maine? Right? Wouldn't that just make sense? Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll just plant that seed relative to your conversation with legislators uh, that we need to do that sort of thing. So uh, we've, we're down to about 15 minutes and low. So let me just remind everybody that you're listening to Power for the People here on WERU. 89.9 in Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor. And I'm chatting today with Elisa Donahue, the Director of Advocacy and Staff Attorney for Maine Audubon, uh, who is into responsible siting for, uh, for renewable energy and works closely with the legislature on these sorts of things. So she's a, both a knowledgeable and an influential person. And so pleased to have her on. So uh, uh, offline, as we were setting up this conversation, I did share with you something that I've talked about on this program uh, briefly a few times that I did a study back when I was working in the private sector uh, funded by the Maine Technology Institute on rooftop solar. Uh, and this was in conjunction with Revision Energy, who's people who have been on this, this program a few times. Um, and we we used, the, the cut to the chase as, as quickly as I can here, we used LIDAR to look at rooftops in several segments of the state of Maine. And LIDAR let you look at the slope of a roof and the orientation of the roof and to see whether there's shading from an adjoining building or trees. And so we were, we were able to use the technology to truly elucidate which rooftops were suitable for solar. And then we scaled it up to the state of Maine. And the answer was that 56%, if, if we could put solar power on every rooftop that was suitable in the state of Maine, we could generate 56% of our grid electricity. And uh, that sounded a little perhaps uh, and maybe sounds right now as, as uh, a little bit um, overly uh, uh, positive. Uh, but in fact, people have done this in other parts of the country and come up with around 50%. Uh, and in fact, they've even done it in New York City, which I've just found really amazing that it was 50% down there. Just doesn't seem feasible. In two, so we did the study in 2011. And at the time, the kind of the standard solar panel was generating 240 watts. Today, it's more like 400. If you do the math based on what we did back then, we can generate almost our entire electrical grid from rooftop solar alone. And then we wouldn't have to cut down trees or put solar on agricultural land. And uh, I'm just wondering, is there any way that we can incentivize, better incentivize, and the, the, certainly the, the Inflation Reduction Act is going to do this, but are there other ways that we in Maine to meet our climate goals can incentivize it better? And I'll just mention that uh, when I put solar, so I've got solar on my place at the lake where I've been solar powered 
uh, for 11 years. And in fact, I was just looking at my at the bill and I've got a couple thousand kilowatt hours banked over those 11 years. So I'm, I'm way more than, than 100% solar. And But Efficiency Maine was providing an incentive back then. They stopped doing that in 2012. Are there ways that we could help Maine specifically meet its climate goals by trying to incent solar power? Or have you heard about anything in the legislature? Yeah, you know, I think you you named them. I mean, I, I think that solar is something that um, that people are becoming more and more open to. Um, I'm so pleased that when I look around the neighborhoods that I, I drive to see more and more solar on pe- people's um, roofs. I think it's an idea that has really caught on, and really, it's about cost. Um, and those that those cost considerations, I think, are impacted by Maine's. Uh, are positively impacted by Maine's current net energy billing policy. I think that that's a, a really key component um, to incentivizing. Um, I don't even think incentivizing is, is quite the right word, but uh, attracting people to have solar on their roofs um, and the uh, the federal credits that we see uh, at from uh, in the Inflation Reduction Act and other, otherwise. I think those are a really key component. Um, I think that those are the things that need to con- continue on to perhaps be ticked up, ticked up um, in order for, for more people to, to welcome solar onto their rooftop. And, and, and just and let me just expand a little bit more about uh, you know, my perception that, uh, that rooftop solar has all sorts of possibilities. First of all, because we have rooftops, we've, we've got the environmental impact of that structure. We're increasing stormwater runoff. Uh, we've already cut down trees and impacted habitat. So why not use the rooftops for a second uh, purpose there? Uh, and if you imagine that uh, we even got to the point where, you know, most of the houses in a neighborhood were producing half of their necessary power, uh, that would lower the demand on the grid by 50% and make the grid more resilient. And not only that, a terrorist can't take out everybody's rooftop solar. And so there's another advantage. And, you know, and the other thing that I think it's easy to overlook is, when is the grid most stressed? It's the summer day in August, in the middle of the day when everybody's running their air conditioners and solar's doing its thing. Yeah. So what an opportunity yeah. for resilience on the grid. Um, and again, people have, you know, I've talked about this briefly on this program uh, and it's, uh, again, there's some of the rationale why why I think it's something that we need to consider uh, incentivizing more. And just, just to be clear here, the Inflation Reduction Act has increased, has continued the 30% tax credit for rooftop solar for the, another decade. And uh, I'm just thrilled by that. Uh, and we'll see how that all works out. Yeah, as, as am I. And, 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 you know, it's, I, I obviously absolutely agree with you that, that rooftop solar is a huge part of, is a leading strategy um, to help us meet our climate goals, um, but it is expensive, and it there are other limitations on how uh, of actually being able to get to um, you know a uh, solar array on on everyone's rooftop. Um, and I think that it's important for folks to realize that those cost considerations, the um, ability to rapidly deploy. Uh, this ro- rooftop solar. Those are the reasons why we also it needs to be coupled with with grid scale solar, with community solar, um, and a variety of other renewables. Um, 
you know, we're, we're in a race against time right now. Um, and that means that unfortunately we, we need to, to do reach towards some solutions that, uh, may not be perfect in everyone's eyes, but do have their advantages. You know, again, grid scale solar, um, while it does lead to a great deal of land conversion, um, is what is contributing to, um, has, is a much more competitive price um, than because it's working at scale than other types of solar development. Um, so there's a reason why there many uh, developers are continuing to pursue those those projects and why Maine is incentivizing um, or otherwise indicating their support for these larger projects because they're a necessary part of this larger mix of uh, of types of in- infrastructure that we're going to need to meet our clean energy goals. You're right. There's no question that we do need an all of an, all of the above. Yeah. A strategy here, uh, without a doubt. Uh, and and to me, uh, because uh, uh, I can't believe I'm going to say Governor LePage was right in saying that solar was for uh, wealthier people. Um, I think we need uh, some incentives or some rebates for less wealthy people because solar plus heat pumps are a heck of a winning op- uh, option. And when uh, we need to get there. Uh, what are you hearing now? Again, we're down to uh, just a few minutes. What are you hearing now in terms of the the legislation or climate? Uh, sorry, the legis- the uh, energy or climate uh, initiatives that may be coming down the line in the legislature. Yeah, well, one thing that uh, that Maine Audubon's working with with a number of different uh, clean energy uh, labor advocates right now is an offshore big offshore wind bill. And this is a bill that would include an offshore wind procurement um, or a offshore wind um, a affirmation that uh, that Maine is ready to welcome offshore wind and is ready to buy that power. Offshore wind procurements, um, procurement legislation are a noted or a named strategy uh, among across the U.S. as kind of the the jumping off point for welcoming um, offshore wind industry to a particular area. Um, And that's a bill that we'll be pursuing this this session um, along with other clean energy um, and employment advocates in the state. And is that something something that's targeted to the University of Maine per se? Uh, And there's financial incentives there or tax incentives? How are they, how is that, what are the incentives gonna be? Uh, the, ins- I don't know if I would use the word incentives, um, but this is a direction that would say that main utilities need to buy X amount of offshore wind at these times um, and uh, and these amounts so that uh, we give some confidence to developers and others uh, to know that they can start investing money in an offshore wind technology and infrastructure because Maine is ready to buy that power when it is available. Okay. But, and uh, that would be floating, floating offshore wind. Um, and while I, to my knowledge, um, there isn't a specific nod to, um, to the floating technology that has been developed by the university of Maine, I think that's what people want um, because they want to see uh, want to reward the incredible work that has been done by the university. And what's great about the work that's been done by the University of Maine is they have conceptualized uh, these floating turbines that 
can be built in main too, or rather the the things that those turbines are floating on. That's something that can be constructed by people here in Maine. And that's exciting. That means that we can not only use Maine-based technology, but it can be done by uh, work that can be performed by people in Maine. Mm -hmm. Obviously, uh, I mean, my question to you was uh, on the energy front or on the climate front. And so this fills, this checks both of those boxes. Uh, Anything else that you see coming down the line relative to energy or climate? Well, I would say not to to hammer on this bill uh, even more, but, you know, I've talked about the energy components um, of this offshore wind bill, but it includes environmental components as well. You know, we've I've said that this is a bill that would indicate Maine's interest in or our commitment to purchasing energy from offshore wind, but that can come with some expectations. We can put in that legislation expectation that this development would use XYZ strategies to avoid or minimize um, environmental impacts. And that's so that's great news. It makes it, you know, not only a, a clean energy bill, but a um a wildlife and environment bill as well. You know, other things that um I'm seeing coming down the front, there is interest um about locating large scale solar in uh on lands that are contaminated with PFAS. That's also good mm-hmm. news. You know, mm-hmm. how can we that's you know a, a win a win win if not a win 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 uh that how can we uh bring value to lands that have um lost so much of their value because of the discovery of, of PFAS contamination and so that's another place where we would like to see the main see the main legislature direct um the purchase of energy from uh from solar projects that are located on those areas yeah, and I can see that. I mean, given that some farmers are in pretty dire straits because of that, if they could get some income from solar or turbines, uh, I can see that that could be something that could save their the farms until perhaps uh, some remediation could happen. Uh, let me put you on the spot here, uh, not that I haven't yet, um, uh, and ask you about Audubon's position on dams and hydro because clearly on, there's an environmental side to uh, removing dams that is uh, well established now because of things that we actually started with the Edwards Dam removal 20 years ago. Um, but there's an energy component too. Uh, does, does Audubon have a position uh, in our last two minutes uh, on uh, dam removal? Yeah, I mean, uh, this is again a place where I sometimes we can give frustrating answers, but the general answer is dams are bad news for anadromous fish, and uh, they are a stand in the way of the recovery of really important species like the Atlantic salmon. However, those dams are also uh, very much connected to existing industry, to employment. And so we need to balance those wildlife concerns with the with the people concerns. Uh, we have seen um, with some of the examples that you've mentioned uh, that you can have both, uh, that there are opportunities to um, support fish passage um, and to have uh support the continuance of some dams, but there are also really strong indicators that removing a dam is is not deleritous to uh, to associated industry. Right. And uh, I mean, my position as uh, somebody who teaches both energy and environmental topics 
uh, is that, first of all, we have thousands of dams in the state of Maine. I think a lot of people are not aware of that. I mean, when you count uh, old logging dams and when you count uh, impoundments that hold back the water in lakes so to maintain the lake level. Uh, and uh, to me, we should identify the ones that are most deleterious. Uh, the advantage of taking out dams for wildlife is very clear. Uh, but, you know, if we could come up with incentives to, to, in, to install low head hydro on dams, you know, a lake outlet that's not going to, the dam is never going to come out, uh, we could meet both goals. Uh, and it seems to me that we actually maybe need some kind of a task force to evaluate that sort of thing to deal with a combination of wildlife uh, and, and the climate change issues. So we are out of time here. Uh, so let me just... Uh, Remind everybody that we've been listening to, you're listening to Power for the People here on WERU-FM 89.9 in Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor. And the guest has been Eliza Donahue, Director of Advocacy and Staff Attorney for Maine Audubon. Power for the People airs the fourth Wednesday uh, in the public affairs time slot at 4 p.m. And so join us next time to learn about energy topics, policies, technology. Uh, and uh, my goal is to invite a couple of solar companies to come on next month so that we can talk about the Inflation Reduction Act and the opportunities and challenges uh, for solar coming up. So thanks for, so much, Eliza. Uh, and um, it is time to sign off. Thank you very much, Steve. It's been great to be here.